Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs, a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life. Rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Chris Griswold. Chris is the policy director at American Compass, a conservative organization whose mission is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. For our spring 2022 issue, Chris authored an essay urging lawmakers to enact regulations that would protect children from the harms of social media. Comparing child labor debates in the late 19th century to children's use of social media today, he argues that policymakers should focus on more than just promoting economic dynamism and protesting government interference in markets in order to ensure child safety. To fulfill our society's commitment to providing environments safe for children, these new spaces must be appropriately governed, he writes, which requires going beyond the cramped confines of Washington's usual big tech debates. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, brother. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so Chris, we want to start with what we think is really interesting and novel about your essay. It's this sort of fascinating parallel you draw at the beginning. You note that in 1870, there were about 765,000 American workers between the ages of 10 and 15. So we're talking about a lot of kid child laborers here. And that was very widespread in the late 19th century. You note the conditions can be very dangerous. Um, You specifically start your essay with this incident in 1874. There was a fire at a Massachusetts cotton mill, resulting in the deaths of between 20 and 40 girls, so a really devastating event. Some of the girls were as young as five years old. So now we fast forward to the 21st century. And you write that the information revolution of our own century has produced the most dramatic economic and social transformation since industrialization, so since that time period, precipitating its own set of unanticipated and unacceptable harms to children. And so again, here's that parallel that on social media, you say that children are not just um, the customer, they're also the labor. Again, so tying it back to child laborers in the late 19th century. These platforms induce them to produce the content that engages other children, and that in the cycle of virtual affirmation, these companies deliberately engineer drives us to keep on engaging and producing. So they're the producers, not just the consumers of this. So we thought this was a really interesting parallel to start your essay off with. Tell us more about what made you think of this, what inspired you to write this, and why you think it's so important that we take this issue seriously today. Yes, uh, certainly. So let me back up and set the table a little broadly and then narrow in on your question of, of why uh, I think the historical connection between 19th century child labor and, and social media is, is so appropriate. So we're, we're living, as we all know, in the, in the post-digital era, right? The digital revolutions you know, fundamentally changed our social and economic and political life. Those changes were uh, profound. They were paradigmatic. Um, and as we at American Compass have been grappling with technology policy questions and question of how to govern well in this digital age in the wake of this massive technological revolution that's changed so much, um, we found history to be a really useful uh, touch point. And maybe that sounds uh, strange, right, on the, on the front end. Um, the information age is totally unprecedented sure. right, in a lot of different ways. Um, we just don't have any analogs to, to some of the, the novel things that the digital age has presented us with. And yet, right, and yet, uh, we found that in other senses, we, we really have been here before uh, and that there are lessons to be learned from history, right? So what's the last time that we experienced a massive technological revolution that upended our social and economic and political life, um, it was the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. 
And if we think about what happened in, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, we see that as a general matter, technological revolution introduces new opportunities and new dangers, and that governing well in the wake of uh, uh, a moment like that requires policy to catch up to that new reality. And until it does, the dangers that this new technology introduces will, will run amok, right? So think of smokestacks in Britain, right, that were choking cities prior to policy catching up and figuring out how to govern that. Yeah. Um, things got worse before they got better for a lot of people in, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution because policy took a long time to catch up. Mm. And child labor is a particularly poignant example of that. So you noted, right, by the 1870s, we've got like well over 700,000 American kids working in incredibly dangerous conditions. Um, and this was widely justified um, for all kinds of arguments that, that, that I hope we'll get into the course of the podcast, but it was seen as a child labor was seen as a positive social good. And that permitted commercial interests, very powerful industrial commercial interests to monetize childhood you know, for profit, despite the massive harm that it did to children. So, you know, who does, who does that sound like? To, to me, that sounds like social media and Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. It is a powerful commercial interest that has found a way to use new technology to monetize childhood, despite the growing evidence and clear evidence that's causing immense harm to children. And I think the parallel is simply that as with child labor, which took many, many, many decades to, to do something about, that harm will continue until policymakers catch up with this new reality and do something about, about social media as well. Yeah, that's a good place to start. The other really significant uh, sort of comparison or analogy that you make in, in the essay is to uh, big tobacco. You, you sort of compare big tech or, or social media in particular and big tobacco in the 20th century. And I think we want to get into why that comparison is, is, is justified. Um, and, and you cite internal research by Facebook's uh, Instagram, for example, that was leaked to the Wall Street Journal, um, which suggested that the platform knew its use could be harmful to children and, and decided to go ahead and profit off of them anyway. You know, Instagram described kids between the ages of 10 and 12 as a quote unquote valuable, but untapped audience. Yeah. Despite the fact that its own research had yielded results like using Instagram makes body image challenges worse for one in three teen girls and social comparison struggles worse for one in five. Yeah. And, and, and you know, even teen boys had, had reported feeling worse about themselves as well. So you have all these things coming from from this from sexual exploitation to eating disorders and bullying have all have all been identified as originating on this platform. Uh, some of the work psychologist Jonathan Haidt has done that you also point to, you know, talks about just this explosion of anxiety, depression, and self harm in particular with teenage girls since the early 2010s when 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 the proliferation of teenage social media use uh, when when that really blew up. So. Can you talk about, you know, we sort of talked about how this is a comparison to child labor in terms of the productive aspect of social media, the, the content production aspect of it. But in terms of the consumption, do you see an addictive element here in, in a similar way to something like cigarettes? Yeah, 100%. Um, so that, that comparison is certainly not original to me. Uh, there, there are many policymakers and, you know, lawmakers in D.C. that have also compared big tech to big tobacco, and that's entirely appropriate. These are two industries that both, you know, peddle a product deliberately designed to be addictive that have peddled them to children despite research showing that, that the product is harmful. So it's, a fair, I think, a fairly straightforward and justifiable 
comparison. And I think, I think it's useful to back up a little bit here too and just make sure that your listeners appreciate the scale of the harm that, that social media is, is visiting on our kids. You mentioned um, uh, Jonathan Haidt, whose, whose work is fantastic. And, and if your, your listeners are interested in this, I recommend that they Google him and, and read more. But he's, he's outlined pretty compellingly how social media is helping precipitate an unprecedented mental and emo- emotional health crisis in, in kids. Um, rates of depression and self-harm and suicide have risen very sharply over the last two decades. Um, as you noted, Evan, you know, hospital admission rates for self-harm for girls between 10 and 14 doubled between 2010 and 2014. And that's the same period of time that, that, that teenage social life migrated en masse online. Yeah. And we know that correlation is not causation. Uh, the, the industry likes to remind uh, policymakers of that frequently. But researchers like Haidt and others cannot identify a more plausible explanation. Um, it seems very clear that the movement of, of childhood social life to a virtual online space coincides pretty directly with a lot of these, these, these emotional and mental health challenges. Um, and here, too, the comparison to tobacco is really useful because the history of the tobacco and of big tobacco's relationship with science is fascinating. Mm. But back in the day, no one was quite sure whether smoking really did cause cancer. And there was right. a period of time where big tobacco could kind of get away with denying it. Yeah. But at a certain point, if I recall correctly, this is about the 1950s, the scientific research started to become a, a little too compelling. And what they did, I don't know if you remember this from, from, from Mad Men, for example, <laughs> what they did is started funding a ton of their own scientific research. Yeah. And they framed their posture as being pro science. Look, the most scientific thing you can do is to question everything. We've got to do more research. We've got to be open-minded. And they successfully muddied the waters for a really long time. Um, and it would be a tremendous mistake to let, to let, Big tech do the same thing. Um, and as you said, their, their own internal research shows how, how bad this is. It's pretty bad. And, and look, things like social comparison are normal teenage experiences. We all experience that. But, right. but what social media does is hypercharge that experience way beyond what's normal and what's healthy. And teens themselves know how unhealthy this is. And, and we can talk about some of that research that, that they themselves are worried about. <laughs> what they're experiencing online. Yeah, I, I think one thing that, that distinguishes it from, from tobacco and, and maybe even makes it more insidious, and you, you described it not as a, a product they're using so much as a place they're inhabiting. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that because I think that's maybe hard for, for people from an older generation to understand that this isn't, I, I think for, for most of its users, especially teenage users, it, it's not this kind of service that you're sort of you know, taking advantage of it's really where you kind of live um, and, and most of your social life, certainly, but even your, you know, emotional, spiritual, other elements of your life exist mm-hmm. on, on this platform. So could, could you talk about, could you help illustrate that for, for maybe our listeners that are, are less accustomed to, to the way these technologies work? And do you think that reinforces kind of this addictive element in an even stronger way than, than something like tobacco does? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it might be helpful to back up again and talk about social media's business model and why it's addictive, because yeah. it is deliberately designed to be addictive. And the reason is because the, 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 financial, the, 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 the economic value proposition mm-hmm. is a tension that 
advertisers can benefit from, right? Mm -hmm. the, the business model requires your eyes to be on their platform as much as possible. Um, and so as, as, we, as you said in the beginning, right, social media users are not the customer. The advertisers are the customer. <laughs> social media users are the labor, right? We are producing content that other users engage with. We're engaging content that other users produce. And that cycle is uh, encouraged and promoted by the kind of virtual affirmation that we all get, right? Mm -hmm. And this was extremely, extremely deliberate. If you read what Facebook's early designers said, like when they invented the like button, for example, mm -hmm. and when they invented how you scroll up and down through the page, mm -hmm. this was all very deliberately designed to hijack human attention as much as possible and to make you hungry for the validation you get when someone comments on your post or likes your story or whatever. And there's a lot of money at stake, right? So last year it was projected about $56 billion uh, in social media advertising revenue, you know, was on the table. Um, that's the business model. So that's why they need eyes on the page. And that's especially why they need young people's eyes on the page, because that's the future <laughs> economic right. security of this industry. They sure. need the next generation of users. So yeah, it is deliberately addicting. And part of the way uh, to do that is, is to make it where you live your social life, right? Yeah. So uh, the great, I think it's what, 70, 75% of American teens are on Instagram, over half are on Facebook. This is where social life happens. And look, thinking about this as a virtual space, you're right. This, that's exactly right, right. Mark Zuckerberg wants us, he said, he wants us to all live in his metaverse that he's working on. That's the deliberate intent of the industry. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about the implications of that reality for how we regulate big tech. But I think you're absolutely right to point out that it's, it's, a, it's a virtual space as much as it's a product. Yeah, that's a good lead in, Chris, to our next question of why you think we need some regulation here. Um, you know, there's this impulse sometimes to say, this is really a parent's issue. Like, this is something that parents should do a better job of making sure their kids aren't addicted to social media. Uh, but as you already mentioned, it is very pervasive. I mean, as you said, more than 70% of kid, teenagers are on Instagram, uh, more than half on Facebook, almost half are online almost constantly. It's very pervasive and, and parents can do the best they can to try to limit their time. But it's tough to say that they you know, can do everything they or that them doing the best they can is enough to keep their kids off of something so pervasive. And again, parents have no say over how these algorithms work or how the companies develop them to be addictive. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of problem you say, we need some regulation here. And there's a great quote you mentioned from Abraham Lincoln that we thought really encapsulated your argument that I'll read here. Uh, he said that the legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do at all or cannot so well do for themselves in their separate and individual capacities. So you feel this is an, one of these areas where this is something that the people cannot solve themselves. They need some help here. Government can step in and help. So, you know, for either conservatives or progressives who are maybe skeptical of regulation here, um, make the case for why this is an area where it is really necessary. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Let's talk about parents first. In my view, parents are alongside their kids, the, the ones in need of, of help mm. from policymakers. I think it's useful to think in terms of, of network effects, right? If all of your, you know, America's children's social life is happening online, individual parents are, are relatively powerless against that network effect. Like good, good luck telling your kids to just not have a social life. It's not going to work. And, that, and that's kind of the, the triumph of social media is that they've produced that network effect. The ability of any individual family to, to meaningfully alter this national and fr frankly global problem is limited. 
Um, it's also limited, as you, as you kind of implied, Dan, because of the nature of the danger, right? So a lot of surveys and studies that have asked parents about this, number one, parents are very concerned. They're very concerned. Um, but when they try and set rules, um, it's often about limiting how much time you spend on social media, limiting where you can use your phone and when you can use it. So, right, and that will solve some problems, right? Um, if you're not studying when you should be or if you're distracted at the dinner table or if you're not exercising or getting outside, you, you, can, you can solve some of those problems with that kind of parental control. But you can't solve um, your kids being exposed to eating disorder content by TikTok because that's what's going to drive young girls' uh, interest most dramatically, which has been documented, right? as a major health problem by nutritionists who are working with young girls yep. with eating disorders. That's not going to save your kids um, from being exposed to inappropriate material, uh, drug-related uh, material, um, sexual and exploitative, uh, exploitative content. It's not going to stop uh, the fact that, and this is, this is horrifying, but it's not just traditional, explo- traditional it's, it's not just the exploitations we normally think about it of adults to kids that happens. Kids share explicit images of themselves all the time online, um, often without the consent of the person who's who the image is of that. Yep. And, and kids being on a social media platform radically increases the likelihood that that will happen, right? Sure. There are all kinds of dis- dangers that are inherent to the design of social media and telling your kids they can't use the phone at the dinner table is not going to save them from that. It's much deeper. So that's point number one is that parents, I think, it's wrong to blame parents for right. not doing a, a better job. Yeah. It's much more useful to see them alongside their kids as, as those that, that put that policy needs to help. And, and that's what we do with tobacco, right? right? Parents should keep their, their kids from smoking. But we also, as a country, as a society, say it's illegal to sell tobacco to kids. Right. And we back parents up in that way. And then, Dan, I think to your, to your second question, which is, you know, especially conservatives that are often reluctant to infringe on the market's prerogatives and, and so on, and, and others too from across the political spectrum. I, I think I would just say we, we regulate the free market all the time when it comes to child safety, mm-hmm. right? And again, tobacco, we, we, you don't get to sell cigarettes to kids. You just don't get to do that. And everyone across the political spectrum agrees that when it comes to questions of child safety, it's okay to regulate some products, right? We do that for any number of things. You can't sell kids alcohol. You can't sell them pornography and fireworks in some places, handguns. Um, you can't sell them certain loan products where, where they adopt a financial responsibility. You can't sell them tickets to an NC-17 movie. And in some cases, right, some of the things on that list are things that conservatives are often the most excited about preventing kids from, from accessing, like as in the case of, of explicit movies or something right. like that. And then maybe just the last thing, and I'm sorry to go on at such length, but maybe the last thing I would say is, Evan, back to your point, we also regulate the physical spaces that children occupy. I mean, we do that in both directions, right? There are certain spaces we set rules around where kids can't access or they can't access them unsupervised, right? If you're a 10-year-old, you can't just walk into a bar or a nightclub without showing some ID. Um, and we regulate also adults' access to, to kids' environments, right? If you're a 50-year-old man and you show up at a primary school without a really good reason for being there, yeah. you know, the cops are going to come and find you yeah. swiftly as they should. And it's helpful to think about social media as a virtual space uh, for that reason as well, because we have, we know how to protect physical spaces. And when we think about social media in that way, maybe some of the regulatory uh, possibilities make a little more sense and seem a little less 
outrageous. Yeah. Now, I, w- I wanted to follow up on that briefly. I, we're going we're gonna to get into some of these policy proposals that, y- that you mentioned to, to fix some of this stuff. Um, but before we, we did that, I take you to be saying that, look, we have plentiful examples for, for ways in which we can approach regulation of something like this. And you also talked about parents and not, not blaming them. I wanted to ask you about something like at what level that regulation should take place. And, and if there's any way to sort of regulate social media in particular with kind of the principles of subsidiarity or, 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 or working at the local level in mind, I, I, I'd really be interested in what you'd have to say about either the necessity of this being a federal regulation or if there are ways to do it at a variety of, of, of levels and sort of help the states, help the localities, help the parents, help the kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, 100% It's a great question. I think I would say a couple things. One is I'm not sure I see a sharp distinction between, say, a federal policy and uh, parental tools, mm-hmm. right? We, good federal policy will put tools in the hands of parents, for example. And that's, yeah. there's, there's a kind of an integrated way that's, I think, helpful to, to approach these things with. And some of the policy proposals that, that, that I included in this, in this essay and that others on the Hill have proposed and so on, try and do that. So that's, that's point number one. Point number two, I think that makes a case for federal, a federal level solution is that some of these issues will raise you know, constitutional questions. Uh, there have been past uh, efforts, let's say in the 90s, for example, to govern what kids can see online. And they were struck down as unconstitutional because they res- un- un- inappropriately restricted adults' access to material that they had a constitutional right to access. And what's fascinating is that in some of those early decisions, the court noted that they had to rule that way because the technology did not yet exist to, in a sophisticated way, kind of zone the internet into child-safe areas and adult-safe areas. Right. And then they said, when that technology is available, maybe we can revisit this question. And also some of those laws were badly written and so on. But a well-written law that has respect for the First Amendment, but also understands the current state of technology, mm-hmm. might be able to do this um, properly and constitutionally, but that's, that's a level uh, of discourse that has to happen at the, at the national level. That having been said, right, there's a lot of folks that are not happy with Washington's delaying, you know, mm-hmm. on this issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of state attorney generals have taken all kinds of action about, sure. uh, you know, about big tech, um, yeah. whether that's censorship questions or, or the whole range of issues that, that, that folks get upset about. I don't have any issue with that. Right. <laughs> like, what you do, rock and roll, you know. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, especially because this is a virtual question, right, where someone can uh, have a company that's headquartered in one state or one country and easily right. accessed by people across the world, it's going to have to be a national solution at the end of the day, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris, so let's, I'm just going to list off a few of the proposals you mentioned in your piece for regulations that protect kids on social media, and then we can maybe talk about a few of them or ones you think that are particularly uh, valuable. So you talk about instituting an age verification system it would be, you know, reliable, anonymous, um, private, but also public in the sense that kids would have to have some sort of verification to make sure they were of the appropriate age to enter social media spaces, virtual environments. Um, you talk about ban, banning targeted advertising aimed at kids, finding big tech companies uh, each time, uh, whether it's, you know, child sexual abuse material, other bad content shows up on their platforms. 
Then finally, also prohibiting these platforms from publicly displaying images uploaded by children, um, which, as you said, could be also could be exploitative in a number of ways. And then I know you also mentioned in the piece, uh, there's the Kids Online Safety Act, the both uh, bipartisan legislation that both Senators Richard Blumenthal, Marsha Blackburn introduced that I think um, tackles a number of these different areas. But yeah, I wonder if you could just walk us through a few of these and which ones you think are particularly important for policymakers to consider. Yeah, no, uh, happy to. Let's start with the age verification question, which is a question that has plagued policymakers in this country and in other countries uh, for a while, right? If we return to this mental model of social media as a virtual space, it becomes very clear that, you know, social media is not going anywhere, Mm -hmm. right? The Luddite solution is off the table. (laughs) So the question is, what reasonable parameters can a society put around this new space that we don't yet really know how to govern? without sacrificing constitutional freedoms, without sacrificing privacy, which is really important. Um, how do we do that? And so the question of age verification has, has been tricky for, for a while. A lot of the existing methods are pretty clunky, right? You upload a credit card. You, some, some places will have you just do a video call and visually check that you look like you're of age. Oh, really? Um, there are some third-party companies that will ping public records like in a similar way that like a credit application would do, where it just you put in some identifying information and it validates that you're a real person, whatever. Like, like ancestry or something. <laughs> yeah. But all of them are clunky and many of them are kind of invasive when it comes yeah. to privacy. So, you know, the, the idea that, that I'm pitching in the piece is, is a public age verification system that tells neither the government nor a social media company anything other than whether you're above or below a certain age. Like, imagine if you could go to the Social security website, what is it? Mm-hmm. SSA.gov or whatever, whatever it is. Put in your social security number. Get pinged uh, an anonymous code that lasts for 10 minutes the same way we all do with our you know, two-factor authentication right. these days. Yeah. Take that code to Facebook and plug it in. And Facebook on the back end has a, has a, has a, a line into the social security administration. We can just say this code is up, thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm not a technologist. I'd, I'm not the guy you want designing that. But it seems pretty clear to me that that wouldn't be impossible to design. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be impossible to do it in a way that's more respectful of privacy than what we have now. Um, but that also makes it plausible to appropriately age gate social media in some ways. Would it, would it essentially be sort of, I'm, try, I'm trying to think about it using the kind of physical space example yeah. we've talked about, and you mentioned bars. Would it essentially be the equivalent of like a digital driver's license? Yeah, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great example, right? I mean, think about what happens when you walk into a bar. You flash a laminated card that is a, a government product. Yeah. It's issued by the state that that bouncer will look at and then forget who you are. Right? That bouncer is not going to remember who you are mm. or what your name is or even how old you are. They'll just take a look that you're above the required age and then let you in. And the bar also doesn't know who you are. Right? Nobody, it's, a, it's a private yet publicly provided way of age-gating bars. So I think it's a great example. That's exactly right. And in terms of some of the other proposals in the piece that, that you mentioned, I think it's important to go back to Jonathan Haidt. You can tell I'm a big fan. He writes about how the toxicity, this is his line, the toxicity is inherent in a platform that asks young people to upload pictures of themselves and then ask the world to judge them. Some of the other harms that we've discussed, um, not just this kind of mental health challenge of constant 
comparison and so on, but also the exploitation. The fact that just some of this stuff is a public record now that's permanent. A kid can never get away from it, mm-hmm. you know, for their whole life. That all has to do with uploading images that the whole world can access. And I don't see any social value in permitting that for kids under a certain age. You know, there's a Senate hearing uh, last year with the head of Instagram and, and Senator Blackburn asked him a really good question, right? The, the, the head of Instagram was saying, you know, what we're going to do is, is make Instagram accounts private by default. That means you have to, you know, send someone a friend request and they'll accept it. And then, then only then can they see your profile. That's right. going to be the default. It's super easy for a kid to just go and change that default. And, and Senator Blackburn asked him, why wouldn't you just make that permanent? Why wouldn't the private option be the only option for a kid? And I think that's exactly the right kind of question that we should lean into that insight, right? What reason is there for a 13-year-old to share pictures of themselves with people other than their immediate friends and family? Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the value in that. So I think putting some design feature parameters, um, if not baked in, at least in the hands of parents, which is what the Kids Online Safety Act would do, is, is a useful idea. And then lastly, you know, sometimes you can solve things just with basic economics, right? Mm. I don't know what the technological mechanism is whereby we might stop showing eating disorder content to kids on TikTok. Yeah. But I do know that if we find TikTok a meaningful amount per every instance of that happening, they'll figure it out, yeah. right? They're the innovators. <laughs> Silicon Valley's the innovators. Let them innovate their way out of that problem by making it economically consequential for them to fail to do so. And similarly, you know, prohibiting targeted ads at minors, that's the low-hanging fruit. I mean, mm-hmm. President Biden mentioned that in his most recent State of the Union. There's bipartisan... Uh, legislation that would do that from across, you know, across the political spectrum. That's not a silver bullet, but it would send a pretty strong signal to Silicon Valley that our kids are not here for your monetization. Yeah, and I think that alone is 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 worth the price of admission. Yeah, it could, could definitely get the ball rolling. I wanted to ask two follow-ups. It's still in this policy space. The first is about the Kids Online Safety Act in particular. I know that it's been met with a lot of praise, but also some criticism. I sort of wanted to get zone in on that since it's something that's really on the table and sort of get your thoughts on it. What is it doing well? I mean, clearly it, it, it's, it's at least attempting to do something in this space, but does it have any kind of shortcomings that, that you see or any, any ways it could be improved on or an, another bill could be introduced that could kind of build on the work that it's already done? Oh, I think it's a great start. Yeah. And I really applaud uh, Senators Blackburn and Blumenthal for just a fairly exemplary bipartisan effort, which in this day and age is, is not easy. Especially in this space. Well, especially in this space. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, exactly. Big tech has become a highly partisan issue in all kinds of ways. And uh, yeah, it's a great point. They're the ranking member and, and chairman of, of the relevant subcommittee, respectively. And, and so they've, they've done a pretty amazing job working together as a team. I think it's a model for other senators to follow. I do want other senators to follow, and some are. I think we need a, a, a whole host of, of policy entrepreneurship efforts in this space, right? One bill um, alone is, is, is not enough. We've, we've got to have all kinds of good ideas and creative ideas. But I think the Kids Online Safety Act is, is a great start. For example, on the, on the question of age verification, right? One of the things that bill would do is commission a federal study on some of the ways that we might innovate technologically on age verification, which is, is that establishing the kind of system I just proposed? No, but it is recognizing that age verification might be a public good and that it might be worth investing in and figuring out how to do well. Uh, and so it, it invests in that research, which I think is great. 
there are a bunch of other things it does, I think, pretty well, most important of which is this design feature question, which would require accounts for kids under a certain age to be modifiable in terms of their design features by a parent or guardian, which I think is appropriate. And we could spend a whole podcast talking about all the other things that that bill does and, mm-hmm. and what I think about them. But th- that's what I would say. It's a, it's, a, it's a great start. And I look forward to you know, the other efforts in this space that, that hopefully are forthcoming. Yeah. And my really brief follow-up to that is at the very beginning of your previous answer, you mentioned other countries. And I wanted to ask about the international space. I, I, I've lived in Europe before. And one of the things that was most annoying to me was having to click that I accept cookies every time I'm on a website, but it does at least seem like they're regulating the digital space more than we are. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of curious what they've done, if anything, and whether or not it's worked in this, this space involving social media or, or they're kind of where we are. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I would say just maybe real simply, they have been more aggressive. I think that's right. I think they've also found that it's not easy I want to say it's the UK, if I'm remembering correctly, but there are plenty of, at the national level, plenty of examples of people using some of these clunkier age verification mechanisms Mm -hmm. for various online spaces. And a lot of times people just stop using those things because it's too onerous to bother. And, And maybe that's a feature rather than a bug in some instances, but I think those examples are useful in kind of paving the way uh, in showing us some of the challenges uh, in doing this well. But yeah, I think they, they, have, they have tried more than we have, and, and we can look to them for, for some both kind of inspiring examples, but also examples of, you know, the challenges they've met as they've tried to do that. Yeah, Chris, so a final question to wrap up here, and I think kind of just about how we should think about social media going forward. You know, you also know, know in your piece that social media does have some benefits, of course. You know, kids can use it to watch comedy stuff that's you know funny and a nice little break from the stress of the day, keep up with friends and family, access important information, all those things. Those are obviously good uses of social media, and we wouldn't want to limit those, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, we've talked about this entire conversation about all the bad uses of it. And again, I'll, I'll read this quote from your piece. I think maybe you're referencing hate here as well, but you say that um, the problem isn't the use of technology itself, but the radical transformation of childhood into an online experience mediated by commercial interest and predicated on broadcasting one's life while asking the world to judge it. And that's obviously a very difficult thing for a kid and really anybody to do mm-hmm. on, a, on a regular basis. And I also need to mention too here of, you know, in your piece that these big tech executives, they don't let their kids use the social media stuff too much. They send them to expensive schools where technology is limited. So anyways, yeah, just kind of wrap this up for us about how we should think about social media going forward and how to protect kids on the platforms. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Social media is not all bad and it's also here to stay as we talked about earlier. Um, and there are good things about it, right? <laughs> you mentioned uh, comedy accounts, right? I think all of us enjoy, you know, a funny meme from time to time sure, or sure. whatever. And, and, and Facebook, when it did its internal research that got leaked and, and was so widely publicized about how harmful it was, uh, they also noted that the things young people like the most are number one, Comedy accounts makes them feel better, makes them, it's fun. And number two, the ability to talk to family and friends, which I think we would all agree is a positive thing. And then I would also add that it's precisely because social media is the most um, comfortable medium for a lot of young people. It's also sometimes the way they're most able to reach out for help. Um, I think as a normative matter of policymaking, we we look to parents to keep their kids safe, but not every home situation is a good one. 
And there are instances in which a kid might need to use social media to find information about a difficult or abusive situation or, or access help that they might not otherwise be able to act. All of those are good uses of social media that we can protect and should protect. And none of the proposals that, I've, that I'm advocating for would, would infringe on that. Um, that having been said, the harm is absolutely indisputable, right? And we need to do something about that while preserving the good things. And I think for me, it's really a question of who Congress is going to listen to. I think it's better if Congress listens to former Silicon Valley executives yeah. rather than current ones. Um, as you mentioned, if you, if you look at some of these, these guys who invented this stuff, they, they refuse to let their children use the product. And, and I know this is a family podcast, so I won't quote directly what this one uh, former Facebook exec said, but he basically said, you know, God only knows what this stuff is doing to our children's brains. There's no way under the sun I would let my children use that yeah. stuff. And you can insert your you know, the more colorful <laughs> words where, where you think appropriate. I think Congress should be listening to, to, to those voices rather than the current executives who have a financial interest in monetizing their kids' attention spans. And I think they also need to be listening to the parents and kids themselves. Parents are deeply worried. They feel powerless in the face of this network effect that, that we talked about. And kids themselves, right? Again, in Facebook's leaked research, Kids feel abandoned in this virtual environment. They know it's bad for them. They themselves ascribe the explosion of depression and anxiety largely to social media, and yet they feel compelled to stay on the app. It's addictive. It's where their friends are. It's where their social life happens. Kids can't do this alone. Parents can't do this alone. They need help. And, 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 and so I, I think I would conclude where we started, which is talking about child labor at the turn of the century, right? Banning child labor was popular among the public long before Congress did anything about it. Yeah. Congress was not listening to kids. Congress was not listening to, to, to families. Um, you know, there's a great quote in 1906, there's a Republican senator uh, from Indiana, Albert Beveridge, who was kind of the leader in the fight to regulate child labor. And he teamed up with William Jennings Bryan, the great Democratic populist to advocate for what was a very popular child labor bill. And he got up and on one occasion and said, it's a great quote. He said, we cannot permit any man or corporation to stunt the bodies, minds, and souls of American children. We cannot thus wreck the future of the American Republic. And he was right. And I think we could just cut and paste that quote and talk about social media's effect on kids. But he lost that fight. Yeah, Congress mm. just buried that bill. They didn't even want to take a vote on it because they knew it would be unpopular. They just pulled some, some procedural tricks and, and buried it. There were Northern Republicans who didn't want to infringe on the prerogatives of business. There were Southern Democrats who, in the post-Civil War period, were trying to protect uh, Southern uh, industrial interests that relied on child labor. Mm -hmm. Congress did not want this issue, and so they avoided it and deferred to the commercial interests of the day. And, and we absolutely must not make the same mistake. It was until the again. 1930s that- Yeah, that's right. Actually the Fair Labor Standards right? Act. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's how so, long it took. So you're saying we shouldn't have to wait that long. We should not have to wait that long. And we, we, we don't have to wait that long. And I think it's really encouraging to see uh, the growing uh, consensus in Congress that, that we really do have to do something about it sooner rather than later. Yeah, Chris, it was a great essay. And I think it's definitely an important issue that is on a lot of people's minds right now. So we appreciate you uh, coming on the show to talk about it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you, Chris. If you'd like to read Chris's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. 
And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.